long last for a few weeks in April, climate breakdown finally seemed to be at the top of the political agenda. They believe the time for peaceful blight protest is over. Extinction rebellion shut down the streets. School children walked out of classes in protest at inaction from the grown-ups. We are the ones making a difference. It shouldn't be like that, but since no one else is doing anything, we will have to do so. Politicians, some of them anyway, declared a climate emergency. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm absolutely really proud to be part of a parliament that has passed a climate and uh, environment emergency. So today, as First Minister of Scotland, I am declaring that there is a climate emergency and Scotland will live up. Does this surge of interest mark a real shift in public opinion and political will? Can the energy behind it be harnessed? And can our politicians unite against climate change in time to stop the worst of it? Welcome back to Polarised from the RSA. It's presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor. We're not here to orchestrate an argument between warring tribes with opposing views. There's plenty of places you can hear that and watch it as well. Instead, we're trying to understand the big shifts in our culture and our politics. This week, we're talking to Claire Farrell from Extinction Rebellion and Alice Bell from 1010 Climate Action about where the climate movement goes next. Before we get started... We like to make sure that you know what our assumptions are going into a a discussion, where we're coming from. So um, we we call this section full disclosure. Um, Looking at Extinction Rebellion, Matthew, what's your starting point? What did you make of it? So I think I'm kind of reminded of the front page uh, the the socialist worker always used to have at general election time, which was vote Labour with no illusions. And I think I kind of want to say... I support Extinction Rebellion in terms of what it did and achieved, but do it with no illusions in the sense that do it understanding that there are downsides to this kind of action as well as upsides and do it understanding that uh, if you aren't careful about the way you use these kind of tactics, they will end up blowing up in your face. So I think Extinction Rebellion had a great victory. I think they made big progress. I think that what they did was justified, but that doesn't mean that we should be doing it every other Tuesday. I, I have a slight, a similar. Well, I don't know. I guess this is a different view, which is that I wonder if um, extension rebellion is uh, uh, too easy to to nod along with. So it's again, you know, in in a way, surprisingly widespread support, and lots of people were were kind of cheering them on, right? And certainly, it sort of raised attention, gained you know focus on on this incredibly important. Issue, which, by the way, needs rebranding from climate change to cl- climate crisis or something like that. I mean, climate change just sounds, you know, so benign and sort of nice. Um, anyway, is it worth bringing in the, yeah. the, the the what the data tells us about public ambivalence here? Because what what is interesting is that just about twice the proportion of people who approve of Extinction Rebellion's tactics disapprove. So they've got a they've got a negative rating, but yet sixty percent of people approve of their aims. Uh, only twenty yeah, I mean, percent disapprove. This, this is, this and, is... And, and and nearly a third of people have been inspired to do more. So it kind yeah. of is. We do, it's it's a bit like well, we don't want this, but we kind of recognise it works. Yeah, exactly. I, this is sort of why I'm ambivalent about it as well, which is that 
if if you're already inclined to to think that climate change is a big problem, this is a very easy thing to to nod along with, right? Um, if if you think these these people are are just kind of annoying, then you can just kind of feel annoyed about them, and 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 it'll go away. Um, what this doesn't do is confront us with the actual choices we will have to make. I kind of feel maybe it's a little bit too late in the day for this kind of um, attention getting model. This this model where we say we need to draw attention to this thing. I, I think we need to go a lot. F- further than that now. I think we've got as much attention for climate change as you know, we're likely to get. Attention is not actually the problem. The problem is we're not actually facing the, the hard choices that we have to make as a society. So I think any campaign needs to put those front and centre and we need to have those discussions rather than just having a, a generalised kind of like, hey, climate change is important. Yeah, so I'm slightly more supportive than you, but I, I think that one of the characteristics of protest movements is they tend to move towards the easiest issues, the the, the ones that are hardest to get your, your head around and, and, and therefore, by implication, avoid the tougher ones. So they can kind of say, look, we're not doing enough. Well, that's demonstrably true. More should be done. That's demonstrably true. These are, the, in a way, the kind of simple questions. The hard question, as you imply, in is, well, what exactly do we do? And, you know, I, I noticed that today... The International Energy Authority says that for the first year, the investment in renewables has actually declined. Investment in uh, fossil fuels has actually increased. That leads to two very difficult questions. One is, well, you know, it's all very well saying we should do more in the United Kingdom, but in a way, we're not really the biggest part of this problem right now. And the other is, what we're seeing out there in Trump, for example, is is a retreat from global action on anything. And uh, so, therefore, the kind of question is, well, we can sit here in Britain doing loads and loads of stuff, but if the world is unwilling to cooperate and lots of parts of the world that are doing more than damage than we are aren't willing to do anything, what effect is it going to have? Now, that's a harder question, and you can't glue yourself to a bridge to resolve the question of how it is we get countries to collaborate globally. No, but you can say uh, Britain must and should show leadership and be an example and, and be a centre of... of innovation and creativity in the way we, we deal with these problems. Uh, but I'd like to see us getting down to what we're actually going to do about it. Great. Well, we're going to be talking about these issues a lot more in a moment with two people who have thought about them much more deeply than, than we have. We're joined by Claire Farrell, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, Um, and a sustainable fashion designer. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. Uh, Also joining us is Dr. Alice Bell, Director at 1010 Climate Action. Welcome, Alice. Hi. So, Claire, let's start with you and with Extinction Rebellion. What or who is Extinction Rebellion and how did you come to be involved in starting it? Well, Extinction Rebellion is one of the fastest growing movements that's come out of the UK. It's now a, a global movement, which is uh, lots of work going on there on the international front. I got involved because I've always been very concerned with environmental issues and I've sort of tried to dedicate my working life to it. Not that that's very easy in the fashion industry. And I I think I'd like given up really on, I thought like we'd just done climate, it's just was done deal, no one's going to do anything to stop it. And you've put yourself at risk, <clears throat> you've been arrested and... 
Yeah. yeah. And I saw uh, one of the members of our team, Roger Hallam, on hunger strike at King's College as part of a divestment campaign that involved lots of uh, acts of civil disobedience and a two-week-long hunger strike. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, that's an appropriate response. <laughs> and so I went and met him and I got involved doing some London campaigns with the group that was called Rising Up, which was a decentralised kind of network of activists who were really sort of working towards normalising mass participation in civil disobedience as a, as a sort of proven way to, to affect radical change. And from there we worked on the air pollution campaign here in London and then we did um, a hunger strike against the, about the expansion of Heathrow Airport last summer and launched the rebellion in October. This this question of civil disobedience, that's obviously, in answering his question, you've made clear that's absolutely the heart of it. I'm, I'm interested. So I did an event for something called Open Iftar, which is about uh, Ramadan, and um, they gave me a T-shirt when I finished it, and the T-shirt said on it, "Not even water," because uh, people often say to people who are fasting, "Not even water." Now, I suspect the equivalent for you is, "I agree with your aims, but that must be the thing you hear more than anything else." So, just how do you respond to the "I agree with your aims"? But. And what, what are the buts that you <laughs> frequently hear? Well, it's interesting. I, I did quite a lot of spokespersoning throughout the, the last uh, period of, of rebellion. And um, at the beginning, the press were very much saying, you know, these tactics are insufferable, they're not justified, what gives you the right, ordinary people's lives, you know, all the rest of it. And it is it is something that you. I, I think we've sort of all tried to come to a place of answering that by saying, like, we're sorry first because we are and like I'd rather be having I'd rather be working in my career making good money having a nice life seeing some radical proper change within my industry which in my opinion is not happening and is nowhere near happening even though lots of us have been trying to work on that and um and on the topic of climate you know we've got people who've joined us like Fahana Yamin people who've been actively writing agreements working on international negotiation level who also agree that we've reached this point of 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 like what what else is left to do so the first thing is usually an apology but also uh as as people have said who who've who've been researching sort of how civil disobedience can work people like the idea of it they like putting a statue of a suffragette on parliament square and saying oh weren't these people very good but they don't really like the disruption in their lives obviously so they don't appreciate them in the present day and they don't see the necessity for them so yeah for me it's been very much about reframing, we talk about virtue ethics and a, and a reorientation of people's sort of values and, and the way that they want to live their lives. You know, if you think that the whole of humanity and all of life on earth has a terminal diagnosis, then what does it mean then to, to live a good life? And how do you step out of what everybody's sort of carrying on with, with the day-to-day and the status quo? How do you step out of that and do something different in recognition that you actually... You know, you've got enough of the information that it's that it's it's this serious. So, I, I want to, I'm interested in the relationship between what you've done and the kind of rest of the climate movement and the rest of people who would say they shared your goals. And that's why it's great to have uh, Alice Bell here, from the, who's the director of, of Ten Ten Climate Action. So, Alice, what 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 was your perspective on what Extinction Rebellion has achieved? It was interesting you were talking about disruption and you're talking quite a lot about how that's a negative thing. And I, I think I really appreciate the fact you lead with sorry. And I, I know people who were disrupted 
and it was difficult for them, as we all do. Uh, I was I had to cancel a meeting because of something. But um, apart, what's what I, one of the things I thought was striking about Extinction Rebellion over Easter in particular was actually how much people enjoyed a lot of your disruption, particularly things like Westminster Bridge. And the weather was the, you were the lucky weather with the really weather, helped. weren't you? Yeah. But it, I mean, it, it was lucky in two ways because it was made the disruption not nicer, but also it emphasised the fact the climate's changing because it was too oh, it was yeah, very it was, hot for Easter. It was very timely. <laughs> um, but I think it really meant that you could you did chain you did i think uh some of the things that i thought of as the best of the reclaim the streets movement and occupy which is turn a familiar sometimes iconic space on its head and help us imagine how it could be different um and you, you know people love the fact that you pedestrianized uh westminster and waterloo bridge and waterloo bridge is a i walk to work across waterloo bridge every day and it was amazing to see it transformed my running route home when i run home goes through um marble arch and westminster and so i experienced it regularly not just when i was going in to visit as a you know slightly geeky kind of work thing but also just in my everyday life and it was amazing to see those spaces transformed and allow us to see things differently and i think that's one of the reasons why so many people have been so uh, have received extinction rebellion so warmly was actually your form of disruption although it was lots of people were inconvenienced it also offered them something more. The another thing that I think something's really interesting about Extinction Rebellion and important was at the beginning. I think Ian earlier you said we need to reframe climate change to climate crisis, and Extinction Rebellion played, a, I think, a key role amongst several other people about changing the tone and how we talk about climate change after the IPCC report in September. I don't know whether it's appropriate to call it climate crisis, climate change, global warming. I'm a bit ambivalent about what words we use, but I think certainly a shift in tone has happened. And one of the reasons why I think Extinction Rebellion has been so fast moving and um, so many people have joined up and so many people have broadly supported it is that that feeling already exists. And you're, I think what you're doing is riding that wave, but also adding to it. And I think your challenge, you've clearly, we've seen the challenge to the larger green NGOs who've kind of been doing climate, but on the side, quite often hiding between an, behind an electric car or a polar bear in the way that big NGOs quite often do. Or they're like, let's plant trees. We're not going to talk about climate change. Save the polar bear. Climate change. And you're like, no, we want to talk about climate change and put it front, front and foremost. And it was one of the first things you did was occupy Greenpeace. And honestly, I laughed when that happened. And I still kind of laugh. And I think it is kind of ridiculous. Um, and what also, did they do when you occupied them? Did they kind of, I mean, did they have security guards or did they just say, oh, fair enough? Uh, they were quite welcoming, really. I mean, okay. I think we, you know, they're nice people, aren't they? And and they're, and, they're, and they're the people that we thought we were quite sort of well aligned with. And they seem to, you know, they're the most radical or whatever. The language of climate emergency, actually, Greenpeace have used for an extremely long time, um, but obvious, it's just obvious if you look at the data and where where we're going that like the work that everybody has been doing in this sector hasn't hasn't given us the goods. And so when we went to see them, we took we wrote them a love letter and we uh, took them lots of flowers and we took them vegan cakes and we um, a group of activists gave them a lecture with a megaphone in the from the reception desk um, gave them like a sort of talk on on the extinction crisis and then we went in and had a really long meeting with several kind of senior members of staff um, which was a really beautiful heartfelt meeting where we all sort of nearly broke down in tears and stuff you know because it's because we all know that it's that, that it's that bad. So yeah, and it was interesting because when you when you go and do that, and lots of people go, oh, you can't do that because they're good guys. And what are you doing that for? And actually, when you go to them and they go, cool, fair enough, let's talk. You know, like they were super nice. So in the last few weeks, we've seen lots of larger NGOs really making green NGOs making climate a big part of what they do very explicitly. 
Um, and I think that's not just Extinction Rebellion. I think it's important that we put these other things in context. There's the poll from the government. Your government regularly polls the UK public on how concerned they are about climate change. And it just happened that last week we got some new data. The field work for that was middle of March, so before any of the of the April work or the David Attenborough documentary. And or, even in that, in mid-March, it is recordly high levels of concern about climate change. 80% of the UK population. It's always pretty high. The UK population are up for talking about climate change and have been for a long time. But, but it's, it's record high. And I think that all of those things, the, I, the people, the youth strikes have been really, really key. Um, shifts in the BBC, we know they've had internal conversations. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, this David Attenborough thing did not come out of, of you know, a vacuum. Um, along with Extinction Rebellion, have contributed to a range of different people making movies and the political parties too, mm. uh, climate emergency calling. But this is an account, and, you know, I, I think it's lovely the way you've captured the kind of festival celebration, the humour. I mean, I think humour was a really good part part of this, you know, the, the fact that it, 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 it was talking about a terrible crisis but did it with with, with humour and panache was, was a really big part of it. But the assumption we're drawing here is that this is all activity which shifts the consensus. There might be another perspective, which would be, well, this is a... You talked about, um, Claire, about virtue ethics. Some people would say, well, actually, it's virtue signalling, that this is a distancing thing in which Extinction Rebellion people are saying, look, we're absolutely right on, we're the kind of stormtroopers for it, and the rest of you, the undifferentiated mass who can't get to work and can't get to see their relative in hospital or whatever it is, you're the other who doesn't get it like like we do. So there's a kind of danger also that it leads to this kind of purist versus everybody else division. Well, I think what we've tried to do is to say to people, like, join us. And there's lots and lots of people when we've done roadblocks and, and even on small campaigns where we would, like, have a disco in the road for, like, 20 minutes with like, a handful of people. You know, some people come from the street and say... Stop doing that. You're very bad. Or using worse words than that usually. Um, and then <laughs> this some is a podcast you can say. Go, right. And then some people go, "Cool, this is good. Thank you so much for doing something." And so my experience of on the ground is is that there's a, quite an even balance actually of people who go, "You're in my way. That's annoying." Versus the people who go, "Thank God somebody's trying to do something about this because I'm terrified." And, and you know, it might be the same person on different days. If you see what I mean. I mean, mm. it sort of depends on what's mm-hmm. in your mind that day and what you're doing, mm. what you, where you're going. But yeah, it's interesting. The, the first group, the group who don't like it, what's happened to their attitude to climate change as a consequence of having their day messed up, uh, or are you not interested in them? Because I can see the second group. You've taken mm. the second group, and this is kind of Alice's point. What you've clearly been pretty good at is taking people who really care about this and making them care about it even more and be even more determined to do stuff. But the second group, the group that don't really care or are sceptical, do you think it has any effect on them and is there a danger that it pushes them further away? I'm I'm not sure whether they get pushed further away. Some people maybe do. But the first success of our movement, I think, has been this, which was fully intentional, shifting of the Overton window it's it's the first thing is about sort of moving that discourse and what's the what's the public conversation and as that moves i would hope the sort of general possibility for talking about this will will move and perhaps those people will move a little more slowly than others but there's also the evidence based research that people have used in sort of building the the groundwork for extinction rebellion which involves data sets from Erica Chenoweth about, you know, the percentage of the population that need to be in active participation in a movement to affect really radical change. And that's a relatively 
low percentage, I mean, it's huge numbers of people, of course, but, um, you know, to say that you want to mobilise 3.5% of the UK population, there are some people that you that you've, you don't need them on the streets. But, I mean, that's where I think the approach that we take at 1010 really differs from the approach that Extinction Rebellion takes. Because, well, I would say that this group of people who are sceptics are very, very marginal in the UK society. And so actually, they're probably not ones that we necessarily need to worry about a huge amount. We do need to worry about, when they, about them when they have positions of power in politics and the media. But I mean, yeah. overall, they are actually very marginal in terms of numbers. Well, one of the things we need to worry about as we, take, as we start to take action on climate change, if we take action on climate change as radically and as fast as you say we need to, which I agree we need to do it that fast... Uh, and as radically as we do, people are going to start to see their lives disrupted by that. It's not going to be like a nice party on Westminster Bridge. It's going to be kind of mundane stuff like having to change your hob. And it's going to be things like our countryside shifting the way it looks like um, to have wind turbines and forests rather than uh, sheep farming, you know, things like that, which, you know, they're not necessarily for the bad, but they will be changes. And then if we do that badly, people are going to start to react badly. Mm. Um, So we know this for onshore wind is a classic example. Onshore wind in the UK is largely very, very popular in the UK public. Despite what politicians say, it is very, very popular. But there are still quite important groups of people who are really against it. And that's often happened when people have gone into an area and done onshore wind really badly without working with the communities that are going to be affected by it. And we know from loads of research from all over the world that if you do onshore wind really well, where you engage the community, you say, where do you want this wind farm? Would you like to buy a share in it? Do you want to be involved in it? Same thing with solar panels. Um, as well, then then we know that we get even more support. And areas that have done wind and solar and hydro well have huge support for it. And that's something that we need to be really keeping our mind on as we go forward. So if we, you know, we've kicked up a fuss, people are declaring emer- climate emergencies. As long as they take those climate emergencies seriously and actually enact action at the speed we need it, there's a whole swathe of other work that needs to be done. And that can't, I don't think that can work with 3.5% of the population. I think that has to work much broader and we have to go to where people are and listen to them. And that's one of the reasons why I really love your idea of citizens' assemblies. Can we just go back to this civil disobedience point? Because I think there's a kind of implication in civil disobedience, which is if I care enough about something to glue myself to a bridge, that is a kind of legitimacy. There is something... There is something greater about my legitimacy because of my willingness to sacrifice and disrupt. And I think what you're saying, Alice, or what I would draw from that is, if you were actually going to Northamptonshire and persuading them to have more wind onshore turbines, you probably wouldn't organise a demo in Northamptonshire, no. glue yourself to a bridge and say, if you don't do this, you don't care about the environment, you don't get it, you're on the other side. You would probably have a much more pragmatic. I'm kind of interested in, ultimately, do you believe legitimacy lies in the conventional way, which is democracy and seeking of consensus? Or do you think legitimacy lies with the fact that, no, some people, a group, a smaller group of people are the only ones who get it, and they're utterly determined, and they, therefore, should be the ones that we listen to. You should be the ones we listen to. Well, I think the, the point that we've made through civil disobedience is that somebody needs to start very rapidly listening to someone <laughs> and um, nobody was listening enough to any of the voices that were already in the room even though there's huge movement there's all you know there's there's obviously everybody doing the great work that they've been doing for years and years but and yet it's making no impact so by doing the civil disobedience you are able to create the conversation you're able to move that that Overton window and to make something possible and we've been very honest that we don't want to talk about policy in depth right now because it's not it's not our job to tell anyone how this happens it's just that we're in grave danger and something has to happen 
For me, something that's very interesting that people come up when they're when they're talking to you, they always want to go. So, what's the policy, and what do you, what would you do what, if you were in charge? Which obviously not what we're saying from my perspective is like nobody from Extinction Rebellion is saying like we should be in charge. It's like we're just trying to create the conditions for social change. You say you're, you're you're not in charge, and you're not, but you have been to see the people in charge. I wanted to ask you about your meeting with Michael Gove. Thank you um, very much for making the time to come and and talk to us. I know that. Um, you're also talking today to John McDonnell and to Sadiq, so it's great that we've got engagement um, at different levels of government and across. Often, the ministers take these meetings as a, essentially a kind of form of cheap PR. We say, "Well, we've had this meeting with this person that you've all been paying attention to, and that's that's the end of it." And I want to hear about the reality of it. What was your expectation of the meeting before you went in, and then how did that match with the reality of it? Did you have to give a guarantee before the meeting that nobody would glue themselves to the Secretary of State? Was that a condition? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Because um, that would be, I mean, that would, I, I think I would, somebody who was willing to glue themselves to Michael Gove, that is, that's that's commitment. Did someone glue himself to Gordon Brown over Heathrow or something? Yeah, they did try oh, right. to. Enough of gluing um, to politicians, that's a new programme. personally don't really want to glue myself to Michael Gove at all, by the way, but um, <laughs> it's... Um, well, so it came quite quick, and I wasn't expecting us to get a meeting with the with the state from from what we did at all. In fact, I was I was not expecting anybody to be able to hold the sites for as long as they did. So it was way more impactful and bigger and 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 faster and more beautiful than I'd than I'd anticipated. And then to have these meetings with people from Sadiq Khan to Michael Gove, um, the when you go when you go into those meetings, I guess like you don't. If you're me, which is like not, a, I'm not a politician. I'm not really. I've never been involved in any of this sort of stuff uh, at that kind of level before. Some of the people who came in have lots of political experience, um, but there was myself and and some and Sam uh, Knights who works on our political and media team, and there was a 14 year old who took the day off school with permission to come as well. And we all sat down and sort of said our pieces, you know, as a sort of opening to the meeting. Gove was very quick to say okay so you've kind of called us out on on not being a world leader in reducing our carbon emissions because we don't include embodied emissions and aviation that's expanding and blah blah blah, blah. and so that was an immediate kind of admission of like massaging figures basically um which he opened with which i thought actually afterwards was very sensible for for him obviously he knows how to operate he also said something which shocked me very much because it was unprompted we've had an economic model for generations which has been extractive and exploitative. Um, and in the same way as we've created debt-fueled economic growth, which creates a burden for the next generation, so our approach towards natural resources um, has uh, uh, had to change. And we're wrestling as a government with how to do that, how to move towards a more circular economy. And also how to I thought that was things. quite a weird thing for him to say to us because we didn't ask him Sounds to like say that at all. <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't know if you've like I was quoted a lot in the press because when I came out, they were like, "How was it? How did it go?" And I was like, "It was less shit than I thought it would be, uh, but only uh, mildly, just a bit. You know, it was just a bit less shit. But it was, I mean, it was still shit. And like the, those those places, I find quite heartbreaking to be in because." The more that I've done this work and the closer I've got to political 
actors and people who've been in this space and who've been in those rooms and who've been in Number 10 and they've been in Westminster, having, the, you know, for decades, some of them, having their projects cut, having their plans for green initiatives, like having the funding slashed mostly by the Treasury. It just is, is, is a really sad place to be, really, if you're, if you're sort of taking the crisis really... seriously and then you have to be confronted by the actual people who, who organise in in my opinion, against the greater good. I'm really interested actually. that you say it was shit. As somebody who spent my entire life trying to lobby government, to get a Secretary of State to say those things is, I mean, what, what, what do you think, Alice? I mean, I mean, I guess what you're saying is he said all of that, and then you said, well, you know, where's the, well, you know, where's the beef or where's the vegan beef, and <laughs> uh, and and he couldn't actually concretely give you what you wanted. But it, it's I mean, still the, some... the, even a minister, even the head of Defro or whatever, has sort of limited scope for what they can do. Certainly, in the moment, right. He he used the words "I'm not the king of Defra," so I can't. So I can't. Gotta find the so king I, of Defra. So I can't. I think he like, is the king of Defra. I couldn't the declare. Well, the, I think I, he probably what did he mean is, by that? He meant that he couldn't, like, in the meeting there and then say, "Okay, Defra will, as my department, declare an emergency yeah. right now," I've, yeah. and I can't do that for you. I just want to drill down a little bit because I don't understand whether. When you say I personally, or you mean I, as Minister of DEFRA, can understand the crisis, and whether what's what's the obstacle to DEFRA itself today, to tomorrow, yes. whatever the time frame, that's fine. What would it take for you to to join accepting the consensus that there is that there is a crisis? It's a, in a way. Um uh, I'm not the king of DEFRA. Um, I, I have responsibilities as Secretary of State, but DEFRA is part of um, government overall. And if um, government's going to, and I think it's very much to your point, if government's going to uh, drive change, then we want to have collective buy-in. So dealing both with uh, the challenge of climate change and with environmental degradation is not just a matter for DEFRA, it's also a matter for Treasury, Bays, for all government departments, for the Department for Education, um, the Department of Health. You know, one of I also wasn't expecting that, like, after that, then the motion would go through Parliament and it would get voted through as well on, on the emergency. So the thing that goes good on in terms of what he talked about is biodiversity loss, which is, like, the thing which I think is really important for us to constantly return to because the other job that we've hopefully done a decent piece of work on is pulling together climate and biodiversity loss as like two parts I mean of course they're part of the same story but if you look at them as two crises like running alongside each other it's um I agree and 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 I have to say Extinction Rebellion I mean I, my background is in marketing it's an amazing brand name right <laughs> it is it's absolutely it's brilliant and it's to, to me it's a, a big part of the the impact it's you know and it brings together those things oh, it's, it's so had I, a lot of criticism about um Kind of especially so, like so. One of the things I think is positive is the way you shifted the Overton window, as you said. But like the calling of crisis, the word extinction. Um, I was talking to a scientist colleague a couple of months ago, and they were saying people are turning up at their meeting saying humans are going to go extinct in ten years, and she's like, "You're, you're not." And maybe that's not helpful. Um, still have to I'm a bit, I mean, I think we probably need a diversity of different ways of talking about climate change, and a bit of screaming into the void about how distressing it is is probably very useful. As is a bit of shouting about how it's a crisis, as well as other terms but like it is it's not uncontroversial this idea of the the phrase extinction and the kind of concept of climate emergency and stuff and there is some climate psychology work that suggests that it's not helpful 
I mean, there's very little climate psychology work done at all, so it's what, hard what for us to really judge. It wouldn't help to be uncontroversial, though, would it? No, not necessarily. I think that's one of the things is that for many years, people are like reading the research saying, oh, well, if you say this, right. then you'll upset people. And they're like, well, we can't upset people. And they're like, well, maybe actually upsetting people will be helpful. Right. So we I should think, try that. But are we maybe being a little bit complacent here? You know, Nigel Farage is, unless something changes, you know, he's going to win the European elections. I mean, he will say, I personally won the European elections. He's well known to be a climate change sceptic. And when you say that the, 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 the position in Britain is, you know, 80% of people get this, we don't have to worry about being like in America, where basically if you're on the right of the centre, you have to, you know, you have to believe that you have to not believe the science. But yeah, I kind of think Nigel Farage standing up at the peak of his popularity and saying, look, first of all, uh, what we're doing is, we, and I've, I've kind of heard people like him say this, it, it, it's so irrelevant in comparison to China and India and Russia. This is just us beating ourselves up when we don't make any difference at all and being kind of um, guilt-tripped into making sacrifices that will help the poor, hurt the poorest people most. And secondly, in the end, it'll be science that solves this. You know, there's this new science that can take carbon out of the cloud. So instead of screwing up our own lives when we make no difference at all, let's just wait for the science to sort it out. And, you know, and until the Chinese do something, there's no way I'm sacrificing working class people's fuel bills. Now, so when I say that, it, 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 it isn't in the slightest bit original. I'm interested for both of you and why it is you think that that couldn't that articulation couldn't become a consensus in this Oh, country. I do think it could happen. And I think one of the things that's given space for the climate spring or whatever we had just recently was that people were distracted by Brexit. And in the last year or so, people, lots of people who interact regularly with the small number of climate sceptics that exist on the, in, the world, in the UK have reported that they just haven't heard so much of them recently. And they've just been distracted by Brexit. Um, and I think uh, that's given space for climate activism to grow a bit in a time when it, it also was having other reasons. the reason. Fox effect. You know, the, if you're really focused on Brexit, you can't put as much energy into your climate change scepticism. Maybe, maybe. And so I, but I think it could come back. You know, then they feel they if they feel they've won on Brexit, then they'll come back. And um, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to be doing work that is on the on the ground all over the country with a diverse range of different people. So they do have a stake in the low carbon future. So they do, you know, own a bit of a solar farm and were involved in building their local wind farm, and they feel part of it. So when someone comes and starts to threaten it, they say, "No, this is mine. This is something I'm part of, and I understand." Because the if your relationship is just about uh, something um, that we do just every now and again where we go and superglue ourselves to something or watch TV of somebody else supergluing ourselves to something, then it's not something that's going to be quite so much a part of our lives. But if we spend this time where we've got a bit of a moment, you know, this is a climate moment, clearly, if we spend that time making opportunities for people to forge quite deep relationships uh, with all sorts of different things to do with the ways that we need to transition to or the ways that we need to take action on climate change, then they won't be able to, to unravel that. And we've seen that in the States. So Trump's scepticism has been powerful, but there's a limit to how powerful it can be because there's so many people in America with solar panels and they just fight back. Um, so I think we, that's that's something that but, we can think but about. But that, Claire, take, takes me to the, the, uh, the, the other kind of allegation that we made, which is... I suspect, I don't know anything about you, but I'm going to suspect that you think inequality, that, that, that our country is too unequal. I suspect that you are a big supporter of the Me Too movement. I suspect that you basically have a bundle of kind of broadly progressive views that go together. In America, the real problem is that the, the, the climate change issue is overlaid by the ideological issue. In Germany, it's quite the reverse. The most popular politician in Germany, I think, is a Green Party lender, uh, head of a lender, who goes shooting at the weekends and is slightly right of centre, but is green. 
what do you want to happen in Britain? Do you think that actually what we should have is a green-red movement which wants to transform the world? Are you perfectly happy to pick up supporters for action on climate change, regardless of the fact you might not agree with anything else they believe? Um, it's a great question. Extinction Rebellion have welcomed all kinds of people. So, you know, if you believe that we need to take radical action, you can come and join us. And we may be a little low on Conservative Party members, but certainly, like, Sure, come in. You know, if you think this is like the time and the tactics might work, and that's you're interested in that, then then come on board and let's talk about it. I think when you look at the conditions and the and the risk that we face in uh, it politically all over the world, and the rise of the right and Donald Trump and Bolsonaro and Nigel Farage, all of this stuff is showing us that it's possible for the far right and for and for fascism to reignite. I hope that by calling for direct democratic process to be popularised, that that's the opposite of that side of the political space. And so what I hope is is that is that people can can get on board that like if you're headed for massive resource scarcity, a huge migration uh, crisis, like displacement of millions, if not billions of people by the end of the century, loss of property, loss of everybody's livelihoods, unpredictable weather, crop failure, you know, all of the things that we expect and the worst case, if they come, those are the social conditions whereby somebody can stand up and politically say, I'm a strong man, usually, um, and I'm going to go back in time to when we were good and I'll shut out all the other people and we'll deal with this by vilifying others, by closing down ranks in our own nation state and closing borders. And, you know, and we've seen that sort sort of like early stages in, in the, in the refugee and migrant crisis that we've already lived through in recent years. So to me, this is absolutely at its heart, a movement which hopes to lay some foundations for something against like knowing that there's a potential for fascism basically in the future and that and that's that's how I that's how I sort of see it. Well, we've gone over time because that was so interesting. Um <laughs> but we do have to wrap it up. So thank you very much, Alice Bell from 1010 Climate Action and Claire Farrell from Extinction Rebellion. Thank you. Thank you. So, Ian, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And the thing that I, I, I'm really interested in, uh, I want to ask about what your views on this is, in a way, civil disobedience is a polarising thing. It's quite an extreme thing to do, and it's a kind of statement, I believe desperately in this, and I'm very different to the rest of you because I'm willing to get arrested and everything. But yet, listening to both Alice and Claire, but particularly Claire, it's clear that her intention is not to polarise, but to bring people together on this issue. And what that leads me to to feel is that what Extinction Rebellion has done so far this year has worked, but it's a very careful balancing act and they could get it wrong. You know, somebody could die as a consequence of not being able to get to a hospital or something, or or they could just say something and it could tip the other way. Do you think, am, am I being too kind of worried about that? Or do you think there is the danger that, that this which has been positive force could turn negative? Well, it could. I, I think it could go wrong... Either way, I mean, first of all, I think you're right to acknowledge how um, 
interesting this is that they've managed to do civil disobedience so far in a way that actually isn't as polarizing as it might have been. And that's because they deploy considerable uh, emotional intelligence, right? You can see it just in the person of, of Claire, but also the fact that, you know, that, that they've started by by saying, sorry, sorry about this, guys, but we just think this is really important. Um, the fact that they emphasize warmth and humor and playfulness, you know, so all those things managed to make it, uh, you know, more, a less polarizing and more palatable thing than it might have otherwise been, which is, which, which is smart. Could it go wrong? Yes, it could go wrong. In the way you suggest, it could actually just genuinely really start to piss people off or anger people in some way. The other way it could go wrong is if they are so nice, you know, that that, that people just they, they they fade into the background. Um, so they've got they've got this kind of tightrope to walk. They have, and and maybe as a final thought, it's worth them learning, remembering what happened at Greenham Common, which I'm old enough to remember. Greenham Common started as very inclusive, lots of fun, people coming from all over the country, men and women, older people, younger people. It ended up as a bit of a sect and with some pretty toxic politics within it and leaving a lot of people who didn't sign up to a, a very kind of radical pacifist kind of view left out in the cold. So the, the way they manage themselves over the next few months will be fascinating and important. Before we go, uh, we end each episode of Polarised with a provocation, something that shifted the way we look at the world just a little bit. And uh, Ian, I've got a bee in my bonnet. Ah, tell me. I'm always interested in your bees. Tell me about your bee. So I'm interested in Danny Baker and Jeremy Kyle. And I'm interested in whether they are two sides of the same thing. This is Jeremy Kyle, the... the the sort of reality show TV presenter, not the um, not Peter Kyle, the author of a, a Brexit amendment. No, 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 no. You, you, your Kyle's confused. So, yeah. I think some people would say, isn't Danny Baker being sacked because he sent out a disastrous Twitter photograph of a uh, royal baby as a chimpanzee? Uh, exactly the same as Jeremy Kyle being shut down. It shows that as a country, we are changing our attitudes, we are intolerant to um, uh, nastiness in various ways, and this is good. I'm afraid my view is is different to that. I think that Jeremy Kyle being shut down is unambiguously a good thing. I think it's an example of where we kind of felt uneasy about something for a long time, which is exploitative TV, which basically pokes fun at poor people, which is part of a kind of more general account of suggesting that inequality is the fault of the poor. Uh, and I think that they just needed something to trigger that kind of tacit consensus that this was wrong, and that's what's happened. I think with Danny Baker, it's much more complex. Uh, clearly, what he did was unbelievably stupid, and his immediate reaction to it wasn't entirely adequate. Nevertheless, I don't think anybody has made any serious suggestion that Danny Baker is a racist. I don't think anybody is seriously suggesting that he meant to be offensive in any way. He has utterly apologised... And I think the sense that even when we know someone's made a mistake and even when they have apologised and even when they're a kind of national treasure in the way that Danny Baker is, no, I'm sorry, you've still got to go. I think that speaks to intolerance. And I think that ordinary people, when they watch that, most, all, nearly all of whom would say that the tweet was a disastrous tweet, say we now live in a world where you, you can make a mistake and it's no good apologising. It's no good saying you didn't mean it. You will be cast into outer darkness. And I, 
I think that actually contributes to polarisation. So I want to say Jeremy Carl being shut down is something which reduces social polarisation. Danny Baker being sacked is probably overall something that I think might actually increase social polarisation. I uh, saw, I almost agree. I I'm think Danny Baker, on the Danny Baker question, I'm not totally sure that he shouldn't have been sacked, which is a very equivocal position, but that's that's kind of my how I roll. Um, I, I think there the, the probably ought to be a pretty strong uh, prohibition against, uh, uh, against imagery like this. And actually, to a certain extent, his intention, which I, I don't believe he intended it, um, but I think his intention is sort of irrelevant there. A bit like in football when they say, oh, no, he's not the kind of boy who goes in for that kind of thing. But yeah, but he nearly took his ankle out. So, you know, red card. The, but I, where, where I do agree with you on the Danny Baker case is it's extraordinary how um, people don't take into account the record of the person, right? This is a crucial part of contact, uh, context is, does this fit a pattern of behavior uh, uh, in, in their past life, right? Um, if, it's, if it's the kind of, you know, if you've seen hints of racism from this person before, um, and clearly this, this fits the pattern, and it's just a particularly egregious example, then bang, they've got to go, right? I mean, that's how I would have treated the, the Jeremy Corbyn Facebook post. Right, you know, maybe it's a small thing in itself, um, but because it fits a, a, pa- a previous pattern of uh, behaviour, uh, then, then it's a big enough deal that that he should have gone. Um, in Danny Baker's case, you know, there wasn't any evidence of, of that. And, you know, so uh, let me uh, so I disagree with the metaphor you used there. If I and I feel very pained about football today because my beloved West Bromwich Albion lost to Aston Villa last night, but getting Sorry, through yeah. that, speaking through my tears, <laughs> if a footballer does a two-footed lunge and breaks someone else's leg, there is a real injury there. The thing about the Danny Baker is this: if or not, if there is an injury, depends on our interpretation. If we choose to interpret it as a silly mistake made by somebody who had a couple of cans of beer about to watch Tottenham on TV, making a kind of joke which they thought was about class and 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 just kind of part of their kind of slightly wacky humour, and we say, no, 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 this was an act of appalling racism, we turn it into something that it probably wasn't. And not only is that catastrophic for this man and his career, but it actually it, it, it makes us feel that we live in a society that's worse than it actually is because we've turned. So I think that's what worries me about this. We could have as a society said, no, actually, it's fine. We're not, you know, but it, it's a terrible mistake. But, you know, let's be tolerant of, of, of people making mistakes. And instead, we've preferred to say, no, it was a terrible racist act, which probably speaks to the broader problem of racism and somebody must... Be, ban- I, I, be banished I, I anyway. Agree, but but the, the problem is, um, who is we here? Well, that's <laughs> the question we come up right. And and usually we we say that, that the community affected by this are the people who define whether or not it's racist or not, right? As you do, as you with with the Jewish yeah, community true, in terms true. of uh, corporatism. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And and yeah, I think yeah. Okay, a good a a, a, a good point to end with. Okay, well, that's it for this episode of Polarised. Uh, Ian's away next week. You may have noticed if you listen to this programme, by the way, that Ian's always going off around the world, France, Spain, America, whereas, you know, Mr. Dull, Matthew, just stands in London, spends his time in London waiting for Ian to return from his travels. Anyway... Global Britain, I'm part of Global Britain. Yeah, I hope you're not flying, by the way. Anyway, we will be back again in two weeks' time. That'll be the week after the European elections, and they're not looking particularly good if you're worried about polarisation. We'll be joined by the journalist Marie Leconte. Uh, we'll be talking about what the results mean for Europe and especially for French politics. And I'll ask Marie what it's like to be in the eye of a Twitter storm as the instigator of what became known as Bin Raccoongate. No, me neither, but by the time we do it, I will. Polarised was presented by Ian Leslie and Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you 
by the RSA.